Thank you, Isaac, and good morning. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus. That opening introductory passage sort of sets the stage for us as we continue to worship together. The psalmist asks an ancient question from some 3,000 years ago. That little psalm is the very first time we get the word Mashiach or Messiah or Christ mentioned in our Bible. There's a, there's a tension because it seems as though in the world there's no justice. You ever felt that way? Have you ever looked around or turned on the news or maybe on a website or for those of you that still own a radio, whatever it might be, and you say, is there no justice in the world? Maybe you've found yourself saying, I, I wish there was justice. And I find that people who feel that way have perhaps gone a significant season before they recognized they themselves would also be the recipients of justice should it rain down from heaven. We all love the idea of justice until we remember that we're not just. And so this morning, we've got an opportunity to spend some time in a lengthy narrative passage so that we will come out of it thinking theologically. It may sound boring. It isn't. A lot of these Old Testament narrative passages we have historically in the church doing our best, well-intentioned. We've taken Bible characters and we've made children's ministry posters out of them and We've tried to convince young people and then ultimately adolescents and then ultimately adults that these characters are to be emulated and followed, and they are not. They are not the point of the story. I know that our children's ministry posters often have guys like Joshua or Samson or Boaz, and they're all just swole up, and they're poster kids for keto diets, and they wear Rambo-like headbands, and they've somehow got a craft knife. Like, what? No, they were like 135 pounds. They were 5'4", soaking wet, and they might have had five teeth. Right? These, were, these were not who we're trying to emulate. And all of those Old Testament narratives are a declaration about God by God so that we will think and feel rightly about our God and therefore about our own situation individually, familially, corporately and communally and even congregationally. We want justice. We want the wrongs of the world to be righted except or until it's me. Now, we've been studying this semester in the book of Joshua, and so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. We will be in chapter 10. And I want to remind all of us where we've come because the Bible, from the table of contents to the maps, is going to say something very emphatic and striking and maybe even shocking. It goes like this, the wages of sin is death. Sin is a very big deal. The wages of sin is death. And so that, as we go into Joshua chapter 10, prepares us for our big idea, and it goes very simply like this. God is just. Now, that's very good news, unless you are not. And for that, we need something more. God is just, and that's very good news, unless you're not, and we're not. And so we get to look at how God's going to deal with the issue of justice in the world. Now, we're in Joshua chapter 10. 
Just a really quick update in case some of you are visiting with us for the first time. We've been studying through the book of Joshua since early September. We've had God enter the breach of the Jordan River and lead the children of Israel from the east side of the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Moses had led the children of Israel up out of Egypt across the Red Sea, 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they did not believe God. They did not trust God at his word. Always a bad idea. But at long last, four decades in, Joshua leads the children of Israel into the land of promise, They go and they take the city of Jericho. They go and they take the city of Ai. Last week, after those two victories, we learned that the children of Israel marched 30 miles north and they go to a place called Shechem between two mountains and they renew the covenant with God saying that we will obey because there are blessings for obedience. There are curses for disobedience. And they're sort of riding that high, that mountaintop experience. They come back down and immediately they are deceived by some neighbors. Does that ever happen to you? Show of hands? No, just kidding because I know your neighbors. No. They are deceived by their neighbors who say, we're from a distant, very, very far country. Please don't attack us. And Israel enters into covenant with some people called the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, incidentally, are only about five to six miles away from modern Jerusalem, very close to where Joshua and Israel's base camp of Gilgal is. Gilgal is their HQ. It is on the immediate western side of the Jordan River where they came across the water and immediately... They built an altar. They built a a memorial of stones to say, look what God did. There's no way we on our own power could have gotten us to this place in this way, but it is his presence. And so this is their headquarters where they return again and again to be reminded of the presence and the power and the purpose of God. So now we go into chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, now that's a great name if you're looking for someone to something to name your next child or really impose with guilt and shame to your grandchildren. Adonai Zedek means the Lord of righteousness. Not bad, not bad at all, but things go south in a hurry for this guy. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Oh, now that's interesting. This is the very first time in your Bible that the the place Jerusalem is mentioned by name. Certainly back in the book of Genesis, Abram would have taken Isaac to Mount Moriah, which was right there adjacent to Jerusalem, but it's not called by name until here in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. So let me just make sure you're you're tracking along with me. The Lord of righteousness, the king of Jerusalem. Hmm, That's totally a coinkydink, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. He heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he's heard about Jericho as well, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. I love that expression. The Gibeonites were among Israel. They had been inculcated. They had been grafted in. They had been enveloped and absorbed by Israel. That's very interesting. Now, the king of Jerusalem has a problem. He's heard this is all going to happen, but now we got to do a little bit of quick geography. See, Joshua has come across the Jordan River east to west. East is always the direction where judgment is given. He's taken Jericho, then he's taken Ai, and now he is in league with Gibeon. And so the divide and conquer maneuver has worked. The plan was to go east to west, divide Canaan exactly in half, and then drive all the way south, essentially kind of conquering everything south of the Jewish Mason-Dixon line, we might say, okay? Everything south, and then he would wheel around her and then head back north, and he'll do that in chapter 11. 
And he's done it successfully. He's got Jericho, he's got Ai, and now he's in league with the Gibeonites. And so Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, says, we've got a problem. Our backbone in Canaan has been broken. We've got to act, and we've got to act now. We're going to muster all of our strength. We're going to marshal all of our military, and we're going to fight back against the Son of God. <laughs> now, you hear that out loud, and you're like, that's probably not going to go well for you. But we do. And can I just tell you, to spoil the punchline, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, you get to the end of your Bible, and in the book of Revelation, what you're going to find is all of the armies of the world marshal their armies and muster their strength, and they gather against the Son of God. And it goes very, very badly for them as well. So we're getting a foreshadowing, a, a flicker and a foretaste of what we are to expect because your Bible is a narrative that is a declaration about God by God. There are recurring themes that are instructed to teach and to touch and to transform the reader. So let's read, continuing in Joshua chapter 10. Verse 2, this Adonai Zedek, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Oh, that's a good little tidbit we just now get. We know that the men of Gibeon were also pretty phenomenal thespians, great actors. You remember the ruse, the deception? They put on old clothes, nasty sandals, crumbly, moldy, dried, gross bread, cracked wineskins, and then they schlup into town to go visit Joshua, and they fake some horrible Canadian accent or whatever, and the Israelites buy it, and then they throw off their robes, and they're wearing I Heart Gibeon t-shirts, and then they just go home three miles away. Like, ah! And they were amazing warriors, and they were wealthy and opulent and affluent, and they had a huge, big, walled city, like one of the royal cities, and now the Gibeonites have broken Skato. You know what Skato is? Kind of like we have the North American Treaty Organization. Well, they had the South Canaan Treaty Organization, Skato. That's not really a thing. But they were all in league together, these Canaanite peoples, and now Gibeon has bailed out. And so Adonai Zedek says, we got one shot at this whole deal. So verse 3, so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron. That just sounds sort of indecisive. When you name your kid Hoham, he's just boring. What do you want to do today? Hoham, mom, I don't care, whatever. No, this is his Hebrew name. He's the king of Hebron. Remember, these kingdoms are more like city-states. Don't think Camelot. Think walled city, and he's sort of the mayor. That he does have control of a, of a police force or an army, but they're not massive Camelot-like style kingdoms, okay? Hebron is where Abraham lived for a long time, where Machpelah, the cave where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah and ultimately Jacob would be buried. So this is all in the southern parts of the land of Canaan. He gets Pyram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, the king of Lachish, and to Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel." Rather than do what they did, we're going to stick our foot in the ground and say, no, no, not on our watch. But see, they didn't realize, or they didn't believe, that there is a God in Israel. Yahweh is his name, and he is just. And for 420 years, they have had every opportunity to repent of their wickedness, their vile, despicable, debauched, depraved behavior. And now they say, we will not have this God as ours. We will rebel. Verse 5, 
Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, you're supposed to envision this because as an original reader of the Hebrew, you would have understood the geography. Gibeon is sort of high on a cliff's bluff, and there's this wonderful plain that spreads out below it. And these five armies gather around, and they begin to besiege the people of Gibeon. Now, what are the people of Gibeon going to do? They have a couple options. One is to say, ruh-roh, we're sorry about the whole Israel thing, our bad, our bad. We miss you guys. Come, let's have tea. They could have done that. Or they understand more than we think they may have understood And in verse 6, we get the answer. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal. It's 25 miles away. They sent a runner. Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered around us. Don't read on. Don't read on. They send a messenger. Let's say 25 miles. Maybe it's 26.2 miles. I don't know. It's a long way, okay? They send a guy saying, hey, we're being besieged here. Don't forget we made a deal. Now, this has caused debate and discussion for scholars for thousands of years. What was the terms and conditions of the covenant that Joshua makes with Israel? People have assumed culturally that back then this would probably have been what's called a suzerain-vassal treaty, where the conquering superior nation issues terms and conditions, the inferior nation agrees to them, and that's how it works. And if you need protection, they will grant it. But it seems strange that Joshua would have entered into that because they, at the time of the covenant being struck, said, were from a distant, far, 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 far country. It would have been strange for Joshua to, to agree, hey, if you're way out there in the middle of nowhere, we'll come and defend you. But they at least assumed that these were the terms of the conditions of the covenant. And so they send a messenger, hey, don't forget us over here. We need help. The armies of the Amorites have gathered around us. Don't wait. Don't relax your hand. Now, there's a part of me, and this is just transparent, and maybe you're way more virtuous and pious than I am. And in fact, I'm sure that you must be. To think Joshua has an opportunity here to just step back and just sit on his hands and do nothing. And just let these five armies wipe out the Gibeonites and erase any trace of the deception and his humiliation and embarrassment. I mean, what's wrong with a little Canaanite on Canaanite crime, am I right? Just turn them loose on one another and the problem kind of take care of itself. Two birds, one stone. But Joshua doesn't do that. We're going to find out here in verse 7, Joshua is going to respond for two reasons in a very important way. Verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. So we're talking tens upon tens of thousands of soldiers dropped everything, they saddled up, and they moved out right then and there. Well, most importantly, because they had sworn a covenant on the name of their God. And the people of Israel's purpose in that place was to make known the glories, the righteousness of their God, and to declare that God is just. And so if they were to betray their covenant now, no matter how inconvenient, it would cast shadow and doubt on their God, and so they are obliged. But there's more. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Joshua, whew, this is good news. You almost kind of think like, hey, after you messed up at AI, and hey, after you got duped by the Gibeonites. No, God still speaks. God still speaks. Did you know that God is always in the business of taking our blunders and transforming them into blessings? 
And that's very good news. There is no blunder beyond which God can't bless. God's going to do something incredible with the blunders that Israel has made. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. This is future history. God's already done it in his mind. It's finished. I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. What's interesting to me is Joshua does not get a fresh word. Joshua gets a repetition of that which God had already said. We call that God's word. Joshua doesn't get, okay, here's what you're going to do this time. This time, okay, you're going to go left. The quarterback's going to drop back. and He's going to hand off to this guy. And he's going to flea flicker it back. No, go. I've given them into your hands. Go get them, tiger. And so it was that repetition of the truth of God's word that was the encouragement. And God's people in the 21st century would be well to remember that what God has said is enough. We don't need a fresh articulation of some new revelation. God is with us. God is just. And the wages of sin is death. And yet, we have the gospel. Well, the text continues on here. Verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And that's it. I'm so frustrated personally with the text. I want there to be this whole like Tom Clancy experience where we get all the explanation. Nope, it's one verse. But there's a lot going on here. Gilgal is 25 miles to the east. Gibeon is 25 miles to the west. And it's rocky, rugged, harsh terrain. And you have to climb 4,000 feet in elevation. And it's nighttime. Joshua drives the entire army overnight, 25 miles. But there's something that's interesting going on. You may or may not remember way back in chapter 8, on the second assault of Ai, Joshua was told by God, lay an ambush west of the city. And the only way to get there by the way, is to march south around Ai, and they do so in the dark, 30,000 of them. So now that initial blunder, God transforms and redeems, and now the entire army is able to follow the same exact route because 30,000 of them have been there before, just a few weeks earlier. They know exactly where they're going, and they come upon the whole massed armies that could have been horribly intimidating, five armies gathered, and Joshua just goes, surprise! Middle of the night, they arrive. Now, they're probably exhausted. They've climbed up 4,000 feet in elevation. They've walked 25 miles. But God's already told Joshua, future history, I've done this thing already. Now, verse 10, the central verse of our passage, one of the most amazing verses in all of your Bible. Verse 10, and the Lord, stop, don't look ahead. (laughs) This is one of those syntactically strange verses in your Bible where different Bible translators have tried for thousands of years to make sense of it. And so your translation might actually say something different than mine. Mine actually says something that's a little bit, I wish it was better. Because the Hebrew is very, very particular and precise. There is one subject, there is one noun, and it is Yahweh. And there are four verbs, and they each hook directly to Yahweh. Now, translators are going, yeah, but that's kind of weird. We need to help out and say, well, it probably means Israel here, and it might mean Joshua there, so let's just kind of help out. It doesn't really matter, but it's important because God is the actor. He's the, he's the player. He's the one doing the things in verse 10, and we as readers need to understand that. Verse 10, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. 
God sends a spirit of terror and panic into these gathered five armies. Reminds us of a little bit later, we'll have a story of Gideon attacking the Midianites. And there's only 300 of Gideon's dudes, and there's tens of thousands of Midianites. And Gideon just starts breaking pots and lighting firecrackers. And the Midianites go and they start killing each other. That's awesome. Same kind of idea. We don't know exactly what happens, but as Joshua goes, surprise, they begin to freak out and God sends their minds, hearts, souls, and spirits into an absolute terror. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. And then my ESV says, who struck them? No, the text is, the Lord threw them into a panic. The Lord struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. The Lord chased them by the way of the ascent at Beth Haron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedach. The Lord is doing a thing. Now, it seems weird for us to think that Yahweh is chasing after an army and he's just, (laughs) it's not like that. He's sending terror after them and they're turning in on one another. And Joshua comes up over the hill ready to strike and he's realizing they're already running away and there's already bodies everywhere because the Lord is already striking them somehow. Now, we don't get sometimes the geography, but an ancient Hebrew reader would get this immediately. These places, Azekah and Makedah, well, they form a valley. And there's this, what's called the ascent of Beth Haron. And it's this very bottleneck funnel of a, of a descent that goes down about 700 feet every two miles. And there's two steps. It goes descent and then a drop and then a descent and a drop. And God's funneling them. He's chasing them. He's herding the enemies of God into this, if I may be so bold, into this kill box. Because God is just and the wages of sin is death. God's doing it. Now go, Israel. You are going to have responsibilities, and they will. But God is the one who is getting this done. And if I mentioned God is just, because what we're going to see here is going to seem very harsh. This all happens at Azekah. That's interesting. Remember that for later. And Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. Keep that place in mind. And they died. Oh, just a little clarification there. Because you know, when the storehouses of the ammo dump of heaven empty out on your skull, you die. (laughs) And here's a tip-off. When the sky's raining boulders and no Israelite gets hit, there's a tip-off that their God is against us. (laughs) No Israelites died here. And people said, well, there was a gathering storm and there was great lightning and there was hailstones. Maybe. It's not what the text says. The text says God just started throwing down rocks and they all died. This was a judgment because of the wickedness of the Amorites had ripened for 420 years. And they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. See, the text wants us to know that God takes sin very seriously and that God is just. Why do the nations rage? We read in Psalm 2. The Lord laughs. Nothing escapes his gaze. Now, we also have to understand why it was done in this way. I've titled this sermon, Stones. Stones are the method, the vehicle that God historically through Scripture pours out judgment on rebellion, wickedness, and sin. Not not just consequence because you did a dumb thing and now you're experiencing a bad thing. No, stones is a very much judgment. It is a response to a curse, You might remember that one of the plagues of Egypt is raining down brimstone as God 
stones the Egyptians for their wickedness and rebellion against him. You might remember in Genesis 19, God stones Sodom and Gomorrah for their unrepentance and their unrighteousness and their wickedness. You might remember that the children of Israel, growing frustrated with the menu, decide they're going to stone Moses, and God won't let them. You might remember several times when a prophet or a priest in the books of Samuel or Kings or Chronicles, the the people try to stone those people. You might remember in the book of uh, Matthew and in the book of Luke, a couple different times they try to stone Jesus because they think he's a blasphemer. You might remember in the book of Acts, the people pick up stones and they stone and kill Stephen because he was a blasphemer in their mind. You might remember that Paul on his first missionary journey is in Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, and they think that he is a Greek god. And he says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just a man. And they pick up stones and they stone him. It was a cultural way of pouring out judgment and curse. What God is saying here is, this is not nice. But it is just. God is doing this. And he's doing it very interestingly, not coincidentally, at a place called Azekah. More on that in a moment. Verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of all Israel, Joshua prays, and he does so out loud so that the entire nation can hear what's about to happen. Sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now, this is, of course, vexed scholars for thousands of years. What actually happened? And I've studied this a whole lot this week, and here's what I can tell you. I don't know. Uh, There have been libraries published Oceans of ink spilled trying to explain cosmologically what could have actually happened. Well, if God just slowed down the rotation of the earth ever so slightly around the sun, because we, of course, know a heliocentric cosmology of our solar system, or perhaps it was just a reflection of the light, or perhaps we all now know that the earth isn't a complete spheroid shape. It's actually got a bulge in the middle, like a middle-aged pastor. It's got this little thing, and sometimes it wobbles. Yes, I do. Maybe, that's, maybe it was an earth wobble this one time. Who knows? Here's what we know. God did a thing. And if God wants to slow the movement of the earth around the sun, then he can do that without throwing everybody off into the Milky Way. If he wants to. Colossians 1, he holds all things together. And please understand, he's not trying hard. There is either a miracle or there is not. Us trying to rationalize it away misses the point. It's kind of like me saying, how exactly did the second member of the Godhead Trinity, the eternal Son of God, become a baby that wore a diaper? Now, if you want to try to explain that, good luck, Chuck. It's a miracle, and we must embrace it. This is the part of faith. How exactly does this happen? I don't know. Was it just a slowing down? Did he give Joshua and the Israelites like super keto beans, and they were just moving faster than everybody else, and it just seemed like it was 48 hours? Cool. I don't know. We're not told. What we're told is that God did a thing because God is just and the time of judgment had come. Incidentally and interestingly, this is the very last miracle like this that we will see in the book of Joshua. This is it. But we're told more importantly than that that there's an even bigger miracle. I mean, you think stones being tossed out of heaven is a big deal, and it is. You think the whole cosmology of our solar system pausing for an extra 24 hours is a big deal, and it is. But there's an even bigger miracle in the text, and we're told next. 
Watch this. First, the writer in verse 13b says, is this not written in the book of Jashar? Oh, I don't have a copy of the book of Jashar, and neither do you. Because if you do, you'd be the most famous person like in the world right now because we've been looking for this thing for 3,000 years. It's essentially a uh, chronicling of the feats of the heroes of Israel, but we don't have any extant versions of it whatsoever. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. And you would expect it to say, when the sun stood still, it doesn't. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. There's never been a day before or since. And when it says since, it means the writing of the book of Joshua, not since 2022. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man named Yeshua. God is our salvation. Joshua knows he has an opportunity. Rather than going and fight Ai and then fight Gibeon and fight all these different city-states one at a time, he's got them all gathered together, and then God does the thing. Joshua doesn't have to go and fight them all at once, all at once, all at once. God's brought them all together, and God fought for Israel. That's the closing message there. Verse 14. So verse 15 Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. That's the great grand climax of this narrative of the battle. But the writer is then going to rewind, and from verses 16 all the way through 43, is just going to give us a summary of all the details so that we know this is actual theological history. Now, I super strongly encourage you to go back and read all this, just in the interest of time. I'm going to summarize this and just sort of tell you the story of what happens from verses 16 and following just because I want you to understand, this is theological history. After these things, Joshua has the sun, or he prays, and God has the sun and the moon stand still. And then Joshua begins to pursue these people, and he just mows them down because God is just. At some point, the five kings all cluster together because they're not actually fighting dudes, they're kings, and they all take shelter and refuge together in a cave at Makedach. And so the armies of Israel are fanning out. They're destroying all the other armies. A couple escape and make it back to their cities for just a day or two. And then they're going to be totally found and destroyed as well. But these five kings huddle together in a cave. And Joshua says, we're not stopping now. Put a stone over that cave and trap them inside. That must have been a weird feeling. And they're left there while Joshua and the armies of Israel go out and they pursue everybody else. They find everybody else, all the other armies, they destroy them. They put them to death by the sword. And the text will just say, and they died by the edge of the sword. Next sentence, and they died by the edge of the sword. Israel was doing a thing because God is just and the wages of sin is death. Finally, Joshua and all the armies of Israel, they go back to Makedach and they remove the stones and those five kings are still in like, hey, <laughs> sorry, can you put the stone back, please? It, yeah. And sure enough, Joshua has all the five kings come out and he prostrates them, puts their faces in the dirt. It's an ancient custom, a, a cultural thing that you would do, uh, the Assyrians would do it, the Babylonians would do it. You would put their faces in the dirt and then you would have the commanders of your army literally come and literally put your literal feet on their literal necks. Joshua talks about it here. Look at verse 25. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And then afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they, hang, and they hung on, on the trees until evening. Joshua leads 
these people, and if you'll allow a, a, a latitudinal usage of this term, into a sacrament, we might say. A visceral, kinesthetic, experiential exercise to demonstrate what God is and what God has done. We call it in our context communion or baptism. I want you to literally put your feet on their necks and then Joshua kills them and they experience it, they feel it, they see it, they hear it as a reminder that God is just. And sometimes we need those reminders in our lives because we shrug off this God and we think, eh, perhaps he's busy. Eh, perhaps he's not paying attention. Eh, perhaps he's not that zealous for righteousness. Those people got to experience a sacrament of the justice of God. Well, Joshua kills them himself and puts them on a tree. Verse 28, uh, sorry, verse 27. But at the time of the sun going, of the going down of the sun, oh, it started back up again. That's nice. Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained this very day. Oh, you know, no big deal. Just the king of righteousness, king of Jerusalem, hanged on a tree, killed, shamed, thrown in a cave, and a stone rolled in front of it. Total quinky dink there. Just in case you're preparing for, yes, yes, so much more. Well, the story continues, and now we're going to get the city-by-city city exploits as Joshua takes everything in the southern part of Cain. We've got a quick map of this, I think. We want you to see this. You can kind of see where they came in, where these different city-states are. But in one campaign, rather than a drawn-out campaign that might have taken years, in a single campaign that might take a couple days, Joshua now has completed the east to west drive militarily. They've completely taken all of the southern half of Canaan all the way down to the borders of Egypt, all of the Negev Desert, everything over to the, Jordan's, uh, the Jordan River, all of it. God said, I am just, and I want the wickedness of the Amorites punished. Until finally, all the way down in verse 42, we read this. And Joshua captured all the kings of their land at one time, better than he expected, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. There's that refrain. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal to go back to the place where they could see and be reminded of that memorial of look what God did. And the southern half of Canaan is conquered by the time we finish chapter 10. When we resume in chapter 11, we'll see Joshua and the nation of Israel begin to move north. The one interesting omission is that in all that demonstration and all that we see on that map, yes, Adonai Zedek was killed and hanged on a tree and thrown in a cave and stone rolled over him. Jerusalem was never taken in the conquest. For whatever reason, they ran out of gas, they ran out of steam. Joshua nor the judges are ever able to take Jerusalem. It takes a shepherd king named David. And in 2 Samuel 5, we finally have David 500 years after Joshua come in and he captures Jerusalem and he makes it his capital. So God is just. What are we to take away? How do we apply that to our lives here in the 21st century? Three quick implications, things that are supposed to be portable principles that we carry around and that change our thinking and our feeling about God, ourselves, and one another. Number one, justice must be done. It would ungod God to simply say, oh, let's just let bygone be bygone. Let's just forget that ever happened. No, that would literally ungod God, and that is the one thing God cannot do. Justice must be done because that is his character. God is just. And because he is all-knowing, his omniscience, there is a problem with evil in the world. 
every now and then we'll get some sort of major blips on the radar. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of evil in the world. Is there not justice? Oh, that doesn't even scratch the surface of the amount of evil in the world that exists in the heart and mind of every individual human being. All of us in thought, word, and deed are capable of so much that proceeds apart from faith. Romans 14, 23b, what is sin? Anything that proceeds apart from faith, anything that stems from a failure to believe the gospel. And justice must be done, and God is just. Justice must roll down like a river. We forget that sometimes, practically and functionally. We shrug and we wink at sin, but holiness and sin really are a zero-sum algebraic equation. Anything that proceeds apart from faith must be judged. Our God is working through our world as we speak, but Christians, church, friends, church family, we forget that it's a hostage situation. Jesus talks about, I am just and I will wield justice but at present, so many that I would rescue are in bondage in a hostage situation. And Jesus says, I can't just come in and eradicate the enemy. It would be catastrophic. And so he invites his people, his brothers and sisters to be the invitation to proclaim the gospel. Won't you believe? Won't you repent and not behave like an Amorite? We are to invite people out of bondage and into the gospel while there is still time. In the book of Hebrews, the author there says, while today is still called today, will you not be persuaded? Second point goes like this. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ all over again. We are Gibeonites. Do you know? We are the Gentile nations who bring nothing to our salvation but our sin because we confess that God is our salvation. You remember what they said? Hey, Joshua, we are in the New Eric translation, a world of hurt. Get on your horse, get over here. That's what we bring as Gentiles. We confess that God is our salvation, that we are powerless to fight for ourselves in any way that will bring us into right relationship with God. We deserve condemnation from heaven because we have sinned and that makes us sinners. And so we continue to sin, to act and speak and think apart from faith. But... The gospel says that we get grace, what we don't deserve, the love and attention and affection from our God and the full imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Bible also says that we don't have to suffer the stones of condemnation and judgment for our sin. We don't get what we actually deserve. We get mercy. Third point goes like this. We read it twice in this text. It goes like this. God fights for his son. <laughs> Here's how this all wraps together and how it tethers to our text. The writer of Joshua wants to make it very clear that God is doing all of the action because of his defense of Israel, his beloved firstborn son. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. Have you noticed? Chapter 10 begins with the Gibeonites asking for help, and then you never hear about them again. Even though they're capable warriors, even though they're apparently loaded financially, you never hear from them again. You know why? Because the Son of God's going to fight their battle. Because the Son of God's going to fight their battle. Israel, led by a guy named Yeshua, God of salvation. You never hear from them again. 
They are grafted in. They are absorbed. And the Son of God leads them and loves them and guides them and guards them despite they're not deserving it. And God fights for his Son, for all those who are in Christ, in the Son. This is very good news, you see, because God is just. And it's great news, unless we're not. But he fights for his Son. How much more when we come to the New Testament, we see that God loves the Son. Jesus is true Israel. And then we Gibeonites who have been grafted in, who have been dignified to serve, as it were, in this age at temple and to point people to the sacrifice, to Jesus. And where the book of Romans says, it is we Gentiles who work to make Israel jealous. We Gibeonites who beckon the Levites, the Judites, to beckon them, come, come, come back, come, come see Messiah, come, come. We get dignified to return the people of God to the Son of God. See, a text like this helps us to think theologically when we encounter any situation in life. What's God doing here? Why is there so much resistance? Either it's from the world or my flesh or the enemy or I'm working against the Son of God. And we pause and we pray and we ask for wise counsel and we have peace. We can know somehow or other, despite my not knowing or not being able to see or understand, God is fighting for his Son and all those numbered with him. Our advocate stands in our defense. See, our Bible is full of stones being poured out for judgment. We've already seen so many examples that I've mentioned throughout the scriptures. But how does this passage prepare us for Jesus? I mentioned that the Israelites under Joshua never were able to capture Jerusalem. That happens later when King David finally captured it. But before King David fights and takes Jerusalem, this young shepherd king fought another little battle with a giant named Goliath. And again, we tend to take those stories of David, little bitty fella, and Goliath, who was apparently nine foot nine, probably more like six foot six, doesn't matter. He was huge. And he's cursing God. He's cursing the sons of God. And David says, this is wickedness. This is rebellion. This will not stand. And so David doesn't stab him with a spear, doesn't do anything else. He takes a stone and he stones him. Because God is just, and those who reject and rebel against God will be judged. So Goliath, this personification of evil, is executed by the shepherd king who is going to be the king of Israel. But here's the twist. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel, the holy righteous, the Lord of righteous, will also in his mercy, the New Testament tells us, become the curse for us. In his justice, he throws the stone. In his mercy, he receives the stone. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The commander of the armies of the hosts of heaven that we learned of in Joshua 5, who was evidently raining down stones on the Amorites, himself receives the stone of condemnation so that we will never have to as Gibeonites. And this is the gospel. God is just, and that's very good news unless you're not. But receive grace, receive mercy. I invite you to believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage that points us to your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you be honored, big brother, for us to make a big deal about who you are, what you've done. 
Would you draw anyone in this room who does not know you, who is still trying to muster and marshal all their strength, all their abilities, all their creativity and craftiness? Would you soften their necks, bend their knees, give them a joy and an exhilaration and a zeal that comes from humility, that you are good, way gooder than we could ever be to ourselves? And would you persuade them that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you are our salvation? Would you lead them into a saving knowledge of your word and your work? Father, for the rest of us, would you remind us of the gospel? We are entitled to nothing, but we Gibeonites who get to serve, as it were, in giving of the gospel, inviting others to come to faith as we point people to the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus, that we would be energized anew, not by some fresh new interpretation, but by a repetition of the truth of your word, echoing forth by your spirit, resounding among your people. Do that. How about that? So, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the truth of who you are and who we are. We pray that that would continue to resonate in and through your people this holiday season. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.